Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 79, Galaxies Matter. On the grand scale of things, galaxies are on the grand scale of things. They are light years in expanse, have billions of stars each, are just like freaking huge, man. And of course, there are billions of them. However, that last point does mean that when we're talking cosmologically, we tend to belittle galaxies. Since there are billions of them, and they are the composite units of the universe, at least the matter part of the universe. Nonetheless, we do give names to some of the closer ones, and we do know more than a bit about the one we live in. For example, Dear Cheap Astronomy, How do stars in the galaxy orbit? There is something weird about how stars orbit around the Milky Way galaxy, and probably any other rotating galaxy. If you think about a standard disk galaxy, it certainly looks like all the stars are rotating about the centre. And to all intents and purposes, they really are. But the physics of it is totally different to how things work in, say, our solar system. In our solar system, around 99% of the entire solar system's mass is in the Sun. So it's hardly surprising to find that the motion of the few planets that orbit it are determined by the gravitational influence of that Sun. But in the Milky Way, it's all different. By and large, the orbital velocities of all stars at all different distances out from the centre are all about the same. That is about 230 kilometres a second. There are exceptions, of course. Stars right close into the centre don't move that fast. But once you're outside those dense inner regions, the speed goes up to 230 kilometres a second, and it stays there fairly consistently right out to the edge, where you find those outermost stars do tend to move a tiny bit faster, maybe up to 250 kilometres a second. Of course, having the same orbital velocity doesn't mean that all the stars in the galaxy keep pace with each other. If all the stars in the galaxy had the same periodicity, then stars near the centre would have to move very, very slowly, and stars near the edge would have to move very, very fast, which is not what we see. So it's important to recognise the motion of stars in our galaxy is not mediated by gravity generated from its centre the way that it works in the solar system. So Kepler's laws of planetary motion just don't hold. What actually does mediate the motion of stars in our galaxy is still a bit of a mystery. The motion of the outer stars is the biggest puzzle since the galaxy just doesn't have enough visible mass to produce the gravity well needed to keep those outer stars locked into the circular orbits we observe. That is, given the speed they're moving at, they should just fly off. So we invoke dark matter to explain it all. And we mostly need that dark matter in the outer parts of the galaxy. The dense, inner, visible parts of the galaxy look like they might have just enough mass density to hold the inner stars in their orbits, but the outer ones clearly need some kind of invisible mass 
to explain why they're not just flung out into the void. But that dark matter that we need to appeal to to explain what we observe is pretty weird stuff. It's invisible, which technically means it's transparent to visible light, but in fact it's also transparent to every wavelength of light, all the way from infrared to X-ray to gamma rays. And if you imagine that dark matter is some kind of invisible dust that the stars have to push through in their orbits, then those orbits should start decaying the same way the orbit of a satellite around Earth would undergo decay when it comes into contact with the Earth's atmosphere. So not only can't you see dark matter, you can't really touch it either. So it's probably fair to say that dark matter is, and does, whatever it has to do to explain the motion of stars in a rotating galaxy. And when you dig into that idea a bit, dark matter does look like pretty strange stuff, being invisible, untouchable, and pretty much unmeasurable, apart from the gravity that it generates. While maybe it's not totally weird, neutrinos could fit that frame, since they're largely invisible and untouchable, and only just barely measurable, but apparently they don't have either the numbers, nor the mass, that could explain the movement of stars in our galaxy. So, here at Cheap Astronomy, we have no answers to offer. We just like to remind people that current cosmology's appeals to either dark matter or dark energy are in no way satisfactory explanations. All we can really say is that there's something going on out there that we can't explain, at least not yet. This is the middle bit. So yes, if we've never mentioned it before on this podcast, we humans do tend to call things dark when we have no freaking idea what the heck we are actually talking about. But something we do know a bit about is dust, which is a good thing because there is a heck of a lot of it out there. Dear Cheap Astronomy, what is intergalactic dust made of? So firstly, hooray for intergalactic dust. Traditional estimates of how much known baryonic matter there is, that's light, not dark matter, have never quite matched calculations of how much baryonic matter there should be, given the expected amount of nucleosynthesis that should have happened within the first three minutes after the Big Bang. But now, according to a 2018 article published in Nature, the missing 40% of the expected mass of visible baryonic matter has now been identified in what's known as the WIM, the Warm Hot Intergalactic Medium. Of course, we can only hypothesise how much baryonic matter should have been created in the first three minutes. And the 2018 Nature article acknowledges that the large majority of this proposed WIM must be in the form of ionised hydrogen, which is beyond our current technology to reliably detect when it's way out there in intergalactic space. What the research team did detect, and in substantial volumes, was a particular kind of ionised oxygen, from which they've concluded that, well, if there's a substantial amount of ionised oxygen out there, there must be absolute truckloads of ionised hydrogen sitting alongside it. And just to get all the terminology clear, when we talk about stuff in mostly empty space, it's generally gas and dust. 
where the gas is mostly hydrogen and helium, and the dust is mostly carbon, silicon and oxygen, but there's always a lot more gas than there is dust, even though there's not actually much of either. Anyway, what we call the WIM, the warm-hot intergalactic medium, is somewhat distinct from the much larger and much emptier voids that are also out there between galaxies. The WIM is between galaxies, but when we talk about how all the matter in the universe is arranged, we generally talk about it being in a thin web of connected filaments, where the WIM is all the loose connective stuff that makes that work. So, in between the dense structures of galaxies and the less dense structures of galaxy clusters, there's a tenuous, wispy WIM that loosely interconnects all the galaxies and the clusters. And while the galaxies are much denser, the WIM extends over gargantuan distances between those galaxies. So even though it's thin and it's wispy, it fills a vastly greater volume of space, and so ends up having nearly as much cumulative mass as all the more compact and more visible galaxies added up together. Nonetheless, this relatively new finding doesn't change the current hypothesized distribution of light and dark matter. To recap, we think the universe started from a single point, and then everything that was in that point spread outwards very quickly, thus ensuring that the total contents of the universe is now very evenly spread out. But all the while, the universe has kept expanding, and because of gravity, any particles that have mass will tend to congregate together. This includes both light and dark matter, but since dark matter is thought to make up 85% of all matter, it's the dark matter that really determines how light and dark matter are distributed. So in any regions where dark and light matter is concentrated, those regions tend to resist the natural expansion of the universe. So most of the universe's overall current expansion now occurs within the accelerating volumes of vast and mostly empty voids. So we think all the visible, that is, light matter, and all the invisible, that is, dark matter, takes the form of a thin web of interconnected filaments of matter separated by huge and growing voids of empty space. Although... Even the great voids are not completely empty. They will contain the odd particle that didn't get caught up in the matter-clumping processes, and we shouldn't assume that all this intergalactic space just contains gas and dust. For example, just as intragalactic space may be filled with rogue planets that have been thrown out of their stellar systems, intergalactic space may contain rogue stars thrown out of their galaxy usually following some kind of galactic collision. So there is actually all sorts of stuff out there in intergalactic space, although it is rare and hard to find, in amongst all that vast emptiness. This is the end bit. So, there you go. The large and the small of it. Galaxies and dust. Every day we are making new inroads towards a comprehensive understanding of what the universe is made of and how all its components work and how they work together. That's all great, we just have to remember we're not quite there yet with the full story. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question 
or you just want to know if we're there yet, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we promise not to go dark on you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nalick, Cheap Astronomy.